Please open your Bibles to Luke 23, Luke chapter 23. We will uh, pick up our study of Luke's gospel, and we are in the middle of the crucifixion. We're only covering a few short verses this morning, but in a passage like this, I think it's fitting to move slowly. Please open your Bibles to Luke 23, and we're going to read verses 34 to 38. We're to pick it up at the end of verse 34. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Well, Lord God, you have chosen a wise plan of salvation. And yet we would have never predicted it. We would have never guessed it. And in your good pleasure, you sent your son to die in our place. He suffered our reproach. He bore the weight of our sin. And as we look at this passage, at the indignities he suffered, and yet the glory that is revealed, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might behold the glories of your Son in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now please keep your finger here, but turn to 1 Corinthians 1. You'll notice the title for this morning's message is The Ironies of the Cross. As a title and an approach to this text that I am freely admit to be borrowing from D.A. Carson. When I was at the Master's Seminary, Dr. Carson came and gave a message called The Ironies of the Cross. He since put that as a chapter in his book, Scandalous. And looking at the mocking and the approach through that lens of irony, I thought was very helpful. And I was working on this passage. I thought, you know, I'll just give credit where credit is due and follow that outline. Because there is deep irony taking place here at multiple levels in this passage. Luke, even though he's a physician, does not go into great detail about what takes place in a crucifixion. We saw last week, and they crucified him. But what Luke does give us is the various mockings and scornings, indignities that Jesus suffers. Luke wants us to see that irony. Irony, again, is not the opposite of wrinkly. It is, it is the unexpected or the opposite of what is expected, either in events. So if you see the fire department burning down, that's ironic. You see an ambulance upturned on the road, that's ironic. It's tragic and ironic. But in, in, in words, irony can mean when you say something and the meaning is opposite from what you say itself. Irony is, is that juxtaposition between the use of words and what they actually mean. We see people today calling in, in this text today, calling him the king of the Jews, the Christ of God. They're meaning to do it ironically. They don't really mean it. They're mocking him. And yet there's a profound reality in which they are speaking the truth. The Jews stumble over this 
perishing Messiah. And God has chosen a foolish, from one point of view, means to redeem his people. And I want you to see that here in 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul makes no apologies. And we, we believe, from many vantage points, a foolish message. And the unbelieving world will be happy to point that out. And I would encourage you not to shrink away from that, not to be embarrassed by that. 1 Corinthians 1, 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Get that. God intended is part of the plan for the message to appear foolish to the unbelieving mind. You, you do the gospel no favors. You do God no favors. You do your unbelieving neighbor no favors when you try to hide that folly. I mean, don't add to it. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25 here, get this. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Turn back to Luke 23. There's deep irony they are mocking Jesus, and yet the very things they mock him for, ironically, turn out to be real, glorious things. Your first blank there, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. They think they are in control, they think they are powerful, they think that they are autonomous, having their way. Jesus is in control. Jesus is reigning even as he is on that tree. So we're looking at it in four points. The ironies of the cross. The first irony is this. The man who is utterly powerless is powerful. The man who is utterly powerless is powerful. Now Luke highlights that with them casting lots for his garments. If you're going to steal from someone, if you're going to divide up his spoil, you presumably do that when you have incapacitated your opponent. It's an added insult to injury. Not just they do it, but they do it in front of him. And so it highlights their perception of their own power. He, after all, is the one nailed to a tree. They're the ones with the support of Roman soldiers. And so to show their power and his powerlessness, they divide up his clothes in front of him. But we've been reading and studying Luke all the way from chapter 1. And we know this one on the cross is indeed powerful. I'll just remind you of an encounter that Jesus had in the Gerasenes. When Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons 
For a long time he'd worn no clothes and not lived in the house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. This man had a legion of demons, over a thousand demons. A military phalanx, a legion of demons, unconditionally surrendered to the living Christ. They recognized his power. Jesus spoke to the storm and it stilled. Nature recognized his power. Jesus raised the dead. The dead heard and recognized his power. All throughout Luke's gospel, we have seen display after display after display of the power of the one on the cross. Even as they arrested him, his disciples made to stop it. And Jesus, here's your blank, permitted them to crucify him. Meekness, the attribute of meekness, is not weakness. It is power under control. It is power under control. Jesus is supremely powerful. He is the one who created all things. He is on the cross because he intends to be on the cross. They have crucified him because he allowed it. This was his plan. This is why he came Jesus permitted them to crucify him. They mock him as powerless. They divide his garments in front of him. And yet the man who is utterly powerless is powerful. We see that in part because even in what they are doing, they are not acting autonomously. They are actually, in casting lots for his clothing, they fulfill scripture, do they not? Psalm 22 Psalm 22, verses 22 to 20, verses, sorry, 16 to 18. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So the informed reader of Luke understands these men, even as they are trying to show their power and Jesus' relative powerlessness, are doing precisely what Scripture had predicted they would do, what God said they would do, what, what his word announced they would do. Who is truly in control here? Who is truly powerful here? It's not them. And that is ironic. It's the first irony of the cross. The man who is utterly powerless is powerful. He is powerful. He allows this to happen to himself. And that's something we can marvel at in worship. You know, when, when you can't control the circumstances, when things are out of your control, we don't generally give people credit for what then happens. They couldn't have done other. But when you realize and understand that not only did Jesus wrestle in the garden about going to the cross, but Jesus could at any moment, had he chosen to, come down from the cross. Every moment that he stays there is an act of his will, an act of his decision, an act of his control. We see his power not in his fleeing the cross, but we see his power in his enduring and triumphing in and over the cross. That brings us then to our second irony. The man who cannot save himself saves others. The man who cannot save himself saves others. Others, we see that in verse 35. The people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. 
if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Now, the stories had gotten round about Jesus. We've, we've read the gospel. We knew that the accounts of him traveled far and wide. And these men knew that Jesus healed the sick and he cast out demons and he delivered many from their oppression. He raised a widow's son. He raised Jairus's daughter. He is, in fact, point A, already saved many others. His name, Jesus' own name, Yeshua, Joshua, means Yahweh saves. And Lucas highlighted that explicitly, whether it's the angelic announcement that we should be saved from our enemies, this child has come to save us from our enemies, whether it's in Luke 7, 50, where he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace, or explicitly when Jesus announces his own mission, Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He saved others, you bet he did. And so they're being ironic If this man is so powerful, if this man can deliver and save, then surely he ought to be able to deliver himself. And the fact that he's unable, apparently, to deliver himself, therefore would um, erode the credibility of his claims to save others. That's that's the the rationale of their mocking. Jesus has already saved many others, yet Jesus was not saved from the cross, was he? he? He prayed. Go to, go to Luke 22. We were there a few weeks ago in Gethsemane. Verse 39, he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing to remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. So he said, Father, in effect, save me from this cup. Let it pass. And the Father implicitly says, no. Now he sent an angel to strengthen him. The answer was no. Jesus has spent the last three years in Israel saving and delivering others, both physically and spiritually. And yet Jesus himself was not saved from the cross. And this is a deep and profound irony. I'm going to quote from Dr. Carson. Suddenly the words of the mockers take on a new weight of meaning. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. The deeper irony is that in a way they did not understand, they were speaking the truth. If he had saved himself, he could not have saved others. The only way he could save others was precisely by not saving himself. In the irony behind the irony that the mockers intended, they spoke the truth they themselves did not see. The man who can't save himself saves others. That's profound. Because Jesus was not saved or spared from the cross, he saves others. In fact, in our very next text next week, what does Jesus do? While on the cross, he brings another sheep into the fold. The thief. He is saving others even now, saving others by bearing their sin, saving others by 
as giving assurance of salvation even to the dying thief. So Jesus has already saved many others, yet Jesus was not saved from the cross that Jesus might save us from our sins. The great irony here, of course, in turn to Isaiah 53, is what is Jesus doing on the cross but saving? What is Jesus doing but saving? This passage has already been applied to Jesus in Luke's gospel, but let's read it again. There's a few passages that speak more clearly of his substitutionary sacrifice. Verse 4. Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is in the very act of saving people while they mock him as powerless to save. There is a deep and double irony. They mean to be ironic in their mocking, and yet they speak the truth. God has ordained that even these blasphemers, in their blasphemy, speak things that are true. If he did save himself, he would not truly be able to save others. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Not because he is physically unable to, but because his submission to his Father's will demanded it. And he cannot do other than that. So the first irony, the man who is utterly powerless is powerful. The second irony, the man who cannot save himself saves others. Now, look at number three. The man who is cursed by God is the Christ of God. The man who is cursed by God is the Christ of God. Now, last week we saw how the scriptures told that anyone pierced, hung, impaled on a tree is cursed by God. In demanding this death for Jesus, the Jews were letting the Romans, letting us, letting Jesus know what they thought of him. This man is a blasphemer. This man is cursed of God. Give him a death fitting one who is cursed of God. And so the irony that they're mocking is if he is the Christ at the end of 35 of God, his chosen one, come down from the cross. Surely the Christ of God is pleasing to God. Surely God's chosen one is someone in whom God delights, not someone whom God is displeased and curses. So the argument they're making, or the mockery, the taunt, the irony that they're expressing is this. Clearly you are cursed of God. So tell us again, Jesus, about how you're his delighted Messiah. And again, they, they, they don't understand what they say. And God, in his sovereignty and in his control, has them speak better than they know. Now, again, for those who've studied through Luke's gospel, we know already, point A, the Father has twice testified concerning Jesus. We have the evidence of fulfilled scripture. We have the evidence of his signs and his miracles. We have the prophetic announcements. But over and above all of that, we actually have God the Father audibly speaking, not once, but twice going on record, testifying to who his son is. 
Turn to Luke 9. When Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father made sure there were at least three witnesses to this. Luke 9. Verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The other time that the father testified concerning Jesus was at his baptism, another public event. And in Luke 3, we read, Verse 21, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So, your blanks here, Jesus is the father's son his chosen one, and the prophet like Moses. That last phrase, listen to him, links back to Deuteronomy 18 and the prediction that God would raise up. Listen, Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses writing as he's getting ready to pass on. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so when God says, listen to him, Jesus is identified. Moses is there. At the Mount of Transfiguration, after all. So God the Father has testified both to the identity of Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is his chosen. He is his prophet. He is his Christ. And the fact that he is delighted and well-pleased in Jesus. So it's true. He is the Christ of God. He is his chosen one. He is the one to whom the Father is pleased. And yet, and here's the irony, Jesus will truly be cursed of God. Jesus will truly be cursed of God. Now, of course, again, the irony being they think he's cursed of God because of his claims to Messiahship, his claims to deity, his claims to privilege. That's not why Jesus is cursed. But make no mistake, the scriptures speak rightly in Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is everyone hanged on a tree. The Apostle Paul makes note of this in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone hanged on a tree. So how can Jesus be beloved of God and cursed of God? He will be cursed on the cross, not because of his sin, but because of ours. Right? No, Jesus in his nature and his being and his personhood is nothing but pleasing to the Father. He always does the will of the Father. The Father loves him with a perfect love. Jesus will become a curse on the cross, not because of anything he has done, but willingly because he takes upon himself our sins. We just read that in Isaiah 53. The Lord has placed upon him the sins of us all. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the worst agony of the cross was anything the Romans did. It was not. 
The worst agony of the cross was the father laying on Jesus, Jesus doing it willingly, the guilt, the real guilt of our sin, and then responding in righteous wrath to it. God crushed him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. We have streamed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why is Jesus cursed of God? Because he willingly takes upon himself our sin and guilt. He receives our curse. So it is ironic. The man who is cursed by God is still, in fact, the Christ of God. Oh, he doesn't stay cursed. Turn to Philippians 2. Your final point here in point three. Therefore, God will greatly exalt him. Simultaneously, Jesus becomes a curse on the cross, and yet Jesus, in doing so, um, will be glorified for what he has willingly done. In Philippians 2, a familiar passage, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. With what consequence? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why we can simultaneously look at the cross and shrink back in horror and shame, and we can worship and behold glory. What Jesus is doing here deserves glory and honor and praise. Strangely, the very act of becoming a curse for us pleased the Father. So they mock him. He saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. Clearly, Jesus, God delights in you is what they're saying. God does delight in him. And even as Jesus truly does become a curse on our behalf, his very act of receiving our guilt and sin pleases the Father such that the Father glorifies and exalts him. It is ironic. And finally, number four. The man who is mocked as king is king. Man who is mocked as king is king. 
We've already seen this in Luke. Turn back to chapter 3. Jesus is David's son and David's Lord. Now in Luke 3, we get his divine descent and sonship, and we get his human descent and genealogy. We won't read the entire genealogy. We just read in verse 22, the father said, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. So as God's son, Jesus is the divine king who has ultimate kingship over Israel, Yahweh, the Lord God. And we'll see in a few minutes in Psalm 2 that when the Davidic king functioned rightly and stood in between God and his people as a mediatorial leader, he became, in a sense, a son of God. Jesus is king of the Jews because he is the son of God, because Israel is God's people. He is their king. And so divinely, he has the right of kingship. Apart from his birth, apart from his genealogy, Jesus has kingship and rule because he is the son of God. And as God's son, Jesus is the divine king. But Luke goes on after announcing his divine sonship in verses 23 to 38 to give a genealogy that tracks all the way through David and ends similar to verse 22. Look at 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Jesus, as David's son, is the hereditary king. He has claimed the throne both ways. He is divine son. He's king. He's the Davidic descendant. He's king. They mock him as king. His kings usually are powerful and glorious. And he's been flogged and mocked and spit upon and nailed to a tree. Does not appear to have any subjects. The disciples have all scattered. Sure, there are some women who are weeping. And so they mock him as king. Even the placard placed over his head is a mockery. This is the king of the Jews. Pilate affixed it, hoping to further shame the Jewish people. They wanted it to say, he only said he's king of the Jews. Pilate, what I've written, I've written. And yet, the Lord God determined that that sign would be accurate. They mean it as mockery and irony. The deeper irony is God's enemies, this apostate people, proclaimed truly the kingship of Jesus. There's an even deeper irony taking place. Um, And that is this, the crucifixion results in his enthronement. The crucifixion results in Jesus' enthronement. Turn turn back to, well, turn to Acts 13. I'm going to turn to Psalm 2 and read a a couple familiar verses. Now, there's a sense in which Jesus is born king of the Jews, right? I mean, he's been king. But there's another sense in which Jesus enters into his kingly rule. He humbled himself for a time, and now, according to Psalm 110, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, awaiting his enemies to be made his footstool. And Psalm 2 is going to be quoted in Acts 13 in a very interesting way. 
I'll read the relevant parts. Psalm 2, 7 through 8. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And what's interesting is that in Acts 13, 32 to 33, we bring you the good news that what God promised to our fathers, this he has fulfilled to us as children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So somehow, the resurrection is being connected Psalm 2, verse 7. How does that work? What's the logic there? It's one of those passages when you go through, and sometimes the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. You, your first pastor, you say, I don't know. I read Psalm 2. I don't see anything about resurrection in Psalm 2. I see a king having a kingdom established. In another message, D.A. Carson was quite helpful, and I think explaining how this works. If you turn to Psalm 2, as we have the final text we look at this morning, before communion, if you look at Psalm 2, it's a psalm about the Lord installing his king, his Messiah, and his son on his throne. Against the resistance, against the raging of the nations, the Lord laughs. Pick it up in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, which in Hebrew is Messiah, and which in Greek is Christ. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. God is not impressed. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now we know ultimately this psalm is written and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. But the language, you are my son, harkens back to the Davidic covenant. You stay, stay here, but in 2 Samuel... We read the Davidic covenant, and it's a covenant that will culminate in the Messiah, but it has, in the first instance, clearly Solomon in view. Let me, let me read it to you. This is the covenant. Remember, God, David wants to make a house for the Lord. And the Lord says, no, no, I'll make a house for you. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. That's how we know in the first instance the Davidic covenant is talking about Solomon. Because Jesus never sins, doesn't get disciplined with the rods of men. What the Lord is telling David is, you've got a perpetual dynasty. 
And unlike Saul, who when he sinned, I withdrew my spirit and I withdrew the throne. I will never end that. So, so back at Psalm 2, the language of verse 7 is the language of God's covenant to, to David. You can see then this psalm is an enthronement psalm. In what, when, here's the question, I think here's how the logic is solved for the citation in Acts. What is verse 7 of Psalm 2 have to do with the resurrection? When does Solomon, in the first instance, become, function as God's son in that way? So God tells David, I will be to him a father, he'll be to me a son. When? It's when Solomon enters into his rule. Because remember, the Hebrew notion of sonship is not fundamentally genetic, but functional, more like the like father, like son expression that we have. And so when Solomon acts as God's regent on earth as king, when he teaches the law of God, when he enforces the justice of God, in a very real sense, he's a son of God. He is functioning in that sense. And so this psalm is all about the installment of the king. Verse 6, as for me, I've set my king on Zion. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So the today in Psalm 2 would most naturally be the day Solomon is coronated as king. There's something very close to that. Okay? I think we're close now to how the New Testament cites this. So in Acts 13, I'll read to you again. This he has fulfilled to us by our children by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. According to Philippians 2 that we read, what event causes Jesus to be catapulted into his rule? It's the crucifixion and resurrection. The today for Jesus. So the today, in the first instance for Solomon, the day that Solomon enters into that sonship relationship with God is the day he assumes the throne. And as we apply this to Jesus, what's the today that he enters into his kingly rule? What's the today where he is set on the holy hill? It's the resurrection. That's the New Testament understanding of Psalm 2. That the today for Jesus, when is Jesus given the name above every name? The resurrection. He's resurrected and exalted to the right hand of God the Father. So then, if you're tracking what I'm saying, and hopefully I've been clear, it is the very act of the crucifixion and the resurrection by which Jesus enters into his kingly rule. They are, in effect, enthroning him. They are, in effect, ushering him to his throne. They think they're mocking him. They think they're thwarting him. They think they're defeating him. They are ushering him into his rule. That's the wisdom of God at work in the foolishness of the message preached. Jesus' crucifixion results in his enthronement. He's enthroned at the resurrection. He's exalted and raised to the right hand of God. He's given the name that is above every name. And all because he suffered to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our God was utterly in control of the crucifixion. These scoffers and mockers and blasphemers foolishly think they are in control, foolishly think their will is being done. They... They know not what they say. And yet we reading this text can see the deep, profound irony and the glory of God at work. The man who is powerless is in fact powerful. The man who is taunted that he cannot save himself is actually in the very act of saving others. The man who is cursed by God is in fact 
the Christ of God, his beloved son, and the man whom they mock as king in every real way is king, and their very act of mockery and crucifixion is what results in his enthronement. The wisdom, the foolishness of God, sorry, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. It pleased God to save and redeem us through these means. Therefore, we are not ashamed preach the gospel. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us for being saved, it is the power of God. Let's close in a word of prayer as we prepare to now celebrate this death with our memorial meal. Lord God, your wisdom is displayed. Your greatness is seen through the folly of the message we preach, um, that you exercise such absolute control and sovereignty over events that would appear as though man were in control. They say not what they know, and yet even their mocking jabs ring true in a deeper sense. You are powerful. You save. You are king. Rule over us, your people. In Jesus' name, amen.